Welcome to Essential Ethics and this special podcast in our series, Pandemic Ethics in a Children's Hospital. I'm your host, John Massey, Clinical Lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre here at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. Today, we're thinking about disability in the time of COVID-19. The SARS-CoV-2 virus has caused widespread panic around the world with a multitude of anxieties, becoming unwell, dying, long-term health consequences, access to health care, protection of self and loved ones, protection of health care workers to protect ourselves, loss of income, loss of jobs and generally economic downturn. All these concerns are accentuated in the community of people with disabilities who are at risk of being marginalised at the best of times, but now feel at risk of being pushed to the back of the queue. Furthermore, people with disabilities might be expected to be at greater risk of severe infection. When it gets to discussions about rationing with a focus on limited acute care resources, the disabled have even greater concerns. To help us think through this problem, I'm joined today by Dr Juliana Antolovich, paediatrician in the Department of Developmental Medicine at Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. Welcome, Juliana. Good morning. I'm also joined by Professor Lynn Gillam, ethicist and academic director of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, John. The question we want to focus down on today is how do we ration limited healthcare resources without discriminating against people with disabilities? Juliana, before we get, though, to the essence of that question, I'd like us just to reflect a little bit about disability, because mm. disability isn't, isn't one thing. No. I'd like just to remind our listeners that worldwide there's a billion people who might be classified as having a disability, mm-hmm. which is uh, an awful lot of the mm, population, mm. potentially 15%. So, Juliana, just fill us in about how you see disability. It's a big question and there's a big responsibility that comes with addressing it. And and I think we need to be mindful that I'm speaking as a health professional rather than a person living with a disability, and that's the voice that's often missing from this sort of discussion. I think we have to remember um, that impairment is the problem that happens in the body. The disability is what happens functionally. But in fact, the handicap experienced by a person is a reflection of the psycho-emotional and physical things that happen to that person in society. So disability is really a social construct. Um, And we have to think about, with respect to health, the difference between disability and complex medical complexity. They may be related, but we have to think of them differently. So when we think about accessing health care resources, disability should be viewed in the same way as we view race, ethnicity and gender and they shouldn't be used as a way to restrict someone's access to healthcare. So I think for me that's a a really important distinction, disability and medical complexity. So Juliana, I think that's really neat 
to set the stage and start helping us as we work towards answering mm, that ethical mm. question of, of, you know, essentially about rationing uh, resources. So there are features of a person that they can't help, that mm. there's nothing, it's just born with, That's or they've yeah. acquired and that, that's there. But then there's the separate issue about the complexity or what their medical illnesses mm. uh, might do. Juliana, with that large number of people in the community with disabilities, and I mm. guess we know that disability is hidden. Mm. So mm. I think that's why even in this pandemic times, there's actually not a lot written about That's true, this. yes. So there's another example of how it's of how it's hidden. Have you got a sense from your patients about how, you know, the community of people with disabilities mm. is feeling in the mm. COVID pandemic? Um, so, so if I speak to the children and families that we look after as a team, um, there was, you know, in that first phase, all of us had floods of email from terrified families um, about what the risks were for their child, what should they do, how should they approach things. And in fact, um, the impact of COVID in children overall seems worldwide to be less than in adults. And in fact, some data from Italy suggests that the impact on children in terms of deaths has been largely because of late presentation. So it doesn't seem that children with a disability are at particular risk, but many families believe they are at medical risk. I just want to make another point that the risk of COVID, we often think about it uh, in in medical terms, in terms of respiratory illness, admission to intensive care, but in fact the psychosocial impact has been substantial and we've certainly seen seen an increased number of presentations to emergency of children with, for example, behaviours of concern who are not able to go to school, who can't access the same level of in-home support, um, who have their routines disrupted and families are not able to manage their care. So the health impact of COVID is much, much broader than what's happening in the lungs or the respiratory system. So there has been a considerable uh, degree of fear. Um, families have been reluctant to come to the hospital at all. Um, and we've, as a group, spent quite a bit of time talking to families about this, about the safety of the hospital, about seeking medical care when they need to, to prevent secondary problems. Do you think a patient's physical care has been compromised by that fear of coming to the hospital in addition to obviously the, the psychological impact? Uh, it has certainly. The, the, there's a paper published um, looking at this um, initially and the number of deaths. So there were about 12 late presentations, four children died, two of whom had disability, and they were both children who did not have COVID-related illnesses but who were cared for at home for fear of coming into hospital and presented too late. Wow, that's, uh, that, that's such a worry, isn't it? And, mm. and before I draw Lenny in, I just because we you know we're here at the Royal Children's we're thinking mm. very much of acute care uh, mm. resources but I'm s- sensing that people with disabilities are missing out on simple things like mm. the carers either thinking they can't come or not going the people with disabilities uh, can't necessarily be protected by social distancing yes uh, 
there's been uh, difficulty for everybody. Perhaps mm. it's worse with uh, PPE and even hand washing uh, yes, facilities. Yes, yeah. I think that um, many families are afraid to have carers come in. Um, many carers are afraid to go in because it is intense physical care that many children with severe physical disability require. But as a group, there is considerable disadvantage. Families who have a child with a disability tend to be in a, a lower socioeconomic group because of the burdens of that care. The fact that invariably one or maybe both parents are no longer in the workforce. So things that we might be able to rely on, like Zoom meetings, good internet, devices to engage, are often not present in in those families. And they can be in very precarious situation financially and, and, and maybe not even be able to access food. Difficulties with accessing the equipment distribution centre here at the hospital, where feeds can be obtained, where practical things need to be um, accessed has also been difficult. So there, the impact on families is occurring at multiple levels. Lynn, we're starting our conversation with this sort of very broad mm. brushstroke of the sort of community effects, but thinking of, of the medical effects. Lynn, do you think that that there is something different about COVID or that it's really just highlighting the problems that people with disabilities face in our community anyway? Yes, that's a good question, John. And my, I guess my response would be that this the COVID situation has not raised new ethical issues in my mind, but it has really highlighted some of the ethical issues that are there and in some sense grumble along under the surface and we don't notice them very much. Uh, but now because things, uh, social situations are very different, resources are more limited, those things come to the surface much more. I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll come to this when we wrap up, but I think it's, you know, this is the issues about what we can learn from COVID. Obviously, there's so many tragedies around the world, so many difficulties, uh, even when there aren't tragedies, and that hopefully, perhaps as a society, we might learn some of these lessons and take some of the good things uh, that we've learned from COVID. Lynn, in uh, in the hospital, though, fairly quickly, we had to start thinking about rationing of limited resources. And uh, we think of acute care equipment and particularly things like ventilators, intensive care, but also protective equipment and, and staff. And one of the things, you know, we've done is develop a framework about how we might think about that rationing of resources or allocation of resources. Could you just share with us, Lynn, just the, the brushstrokes of, of that? And then I'd like to hone down on, on disability. So in terms of allocation of resources, John, there are, I guess, established principles of distributive justice which are there to guide us. And one of the, um, the, the key principles is the idea that when resources are scarce, they should be allocated according either to need or capacity to benefit. Um, need typically means allocating resources to those who are sickest, perhaps most in danger of dying. Capacity to benefit means allocating resources to those who are most likely and able to, uh, first of all, recover from whatever their medical situation is, and then go on to live a longer life. 
so the consensus has been that capacity to benefit is the ethically appropriate criterion in a pandemic situation where resources are at least predicted to be very scarce. And then that criterion should be applied equally to all. Now, in the context of thinking about disability, this is actually quite challenging. Uh, Lynn, do you want to share with us some of your thoughts about those challenges? Mm, I'm sh- happy to share my thoughts, and, I, and they're open-ended because I still don't quite know what to do with this. So capacity to benefit means, um, first of all, can you improve from your current situation? Now, if we think about children with disability and think about, for example, admissions to intensive care for children with disability, in non-pandemic times, we've always thought an admission to intensive care for a child with a disability um, is an ethically appropriate use of resources if it's beneficial to the child. That is to say, can it improve their situation, perhaps bring them back to the level of well-being that they usually have, or alternatively, even if we can't quite get that far, still improve their well-being. When we're thinking about rationing resources, that's that then becomes comparative and we're thinking about how much can this child benefit in comparison to this other child. So it really challenges to, us to think about what it means to have well-being when you're a child with a disability and how that kind of well-being compares to uh, the well-being of a child who doesn't have a disability. So that's one challenge for me. The other challenge is in terms of capacity to benefit over time. Many children with disabilities have um, a limited life expectancy, so anything we do for that child won't produce as many life years going forwards as use of resources with a child who doesn't have a disability who has an expected longer lifespan. So if you put those two things together, it looks like children with disabilities might be deprioritized in the allocation of resources on this on the basis of what are accepted um, ethical principles of resource allocation. And that's a deeply uncomfortable conclusion. I mean, I think, Lynn, as we often share in ethics, deeply uncomfortable is actually a good thing because if they're not deeply uncomfortable, then there's some real worrying uh, potentials there. Lynn, if I could just take what what you've said, which sort of synchronises with my thoughts, was that in terms of disability, we might think of capacity to benefit as restoring someone to the life they had before or something as close to it as possible, I think, were your, were your words to mm. it. Because my concern, and I think lots of people's concern, might be that there's an automatic value judgment about the quality of life of that person at the best of times or what we might return them to. And even uh, shades of, uh, you know, what, what people might be able to contribute to society so that someone's life is more valuable than others. Uh, Juliana, you're, uh, you're nodding, you're wanting to get in there, you're <laughs> smiling, you're nearly crying with, uh, you know, the pain of, of people who might be subjected to thinking like mm. that. Not to be tricky, I, I think we do need to distinguish disability from the medical complexity that can occur secondary to the disability. And 
that distinction is really important because if a child has chronic lung disease in the setting of a neuroprogressive condition, that's really very different to a child who has moderate cerebral palsy and has never had an intensive care admission. So the medical complexity is critical. I think the other point that I really want to draw out and get us to think about is the inherent cognitive bias we have as doctors about what a good life looks like. And and there's quite a bit of data that describes that. A, a beautiful study was done, uh, published in the mid-2000s, where there was an assessment done of the self-perceived quality of life of 8 to 12-year-olds with cerebral palsy. And they actually thought their quality of life was really very similar to their peers. But that's not the perception their parents have, and that may be a function of the care that they need to provide. And it certainly is not the perception that the healthcare workers, doctors, nurses who are looking after them have. So before we enter into this space, we have to own that bias. And the sorts of contributions that an individual might make to life can be looked at in many ways. And it's a bit of a slippery slope for me because then do we start looking at the IQ and the contribution of the parents of other children who, you know, I know I'm stretching it out, but but we need to be mindful of that. I know there are hard decisions to make, but I think we should be making them on the basis of the medical complexity rather than just on the axis of the disability that a child has. So we're trying to get away from any subjective analysis and that's, I think, automatically mm. where quality of life takes you and I think it's good to see in the little literature that's published that that's been rejected. Yes. Um, although in the NICE guidelines uh, from the UK, when mm. I'm thinking of this, particularly the elderly, they included frailty yes. that would go into the decision matrix and then tried to exclude uh, age and, or, and, and race and gender and disability. But mm. that still caught them up, didn't it? The frailty yeah. aspect. But that that frailty may be a measure of the medical complexity. So in that respect... That that then may be maybe some sort of... It, it's still very non-specific. Objective. It's still very non-specific. Uh, it, there's a little written about a sort of an egalitarian approach versus utilitarian approach. So sort of egalitarian approach is, well, we're all equal and, and it sounds mm. it, it, it superficially it sounds great we're all equal and in we come and we treat everybody mm. uh, and if someone's a bit sicker well perhaps they get some priority and it doesn't take into account what they were like before uh, versus utilitarian approach which starts to think about number of lives length of life life years Lynn do, do you have do you sit somewhere, I mean, do you sit on one side or the other or is there a, a hybrid that we can come up with that takes into account both of these reasonable approaches? Yeah, so having been forced to think through this a lot more than I usually do over the last couple of months, I th I'm in favour of some sort of hybrid model where we recognise the plurality of values. There are a number of different and potentially competing values which we somehow have to balance or trade off against each other. So 
in this space, I think we do have to have some consideration towards, in some sense, getting the best use of our resources. That's um, a utilitarian approach, which does focus on the benefit we can get overall from healthcare resources. But the importance of valuing everybody equally sits there next to that uh, and potentially in tension with it. One way of uh, understanding that approach to the distributive justice question is Rawls' idea that in terms of distributing resources, we should aim first to improve the situation of those who are worst off before we look to improve the situation of those who are best off. Uh, and that's potentially a quite strong counterposition to uh, a utilitarian approach to resource allocation. So if we could manage to take both of those into account, that would make our decision-making a lot more complex. Um, but I think it would um, put focus on the sorts of things that Juliana's been talking about in terms of uh, relative social disadvantage of children with disability uh, and then our obligation to uh, try to redress that rather than just accepting that that's how it is. Juliana, you look uh, happier at that prospect of that Rawlsian approach. I do. <laughs> Jill, why don't we take it one step further? Do you think given that there's uh, obviously a baseline of more difficulties uh, in society, uh, there's a higher risk of severe illness, so perhaps catching it's the same as everyone else, but severe complications. Should should people with disabilities actually be preferenced over the resource? I was hoping you wouldn't get to that that question, um, because that that is very complex. Because um, that that could apply to a lot of groups. So many groups in society who are uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged will have poorer health and would fall into that category. The, the flip side is if you are in a, a more severe or significant situation, you might need to use the resource for four times more, for example, than mm. somebody who is less unwell, which then has a, a second effect in terms of precluding others accessing it. Um, I'm probably going to be a wimp and not give you an answer. I think if we're going to prioritise, it is at an earlier stage ensuring that things are in place to mitigate um, infection, to reduce uh, risks in other ways, but whether they should be prioritised at an intensive care level, trickier again. All right. So it might be easy for you to think, as we're talking about because of the, the, the difficulty with social distancing mm. uh, and uh, and various other In ways. So we access. might prioritise protective mm. equipment, hand sanitizer, et cetera, because, but we could do that on the basis uh, that their risk of getting sicker is higher, so it's done on the medical uh, uh, complexity um, yes. and, and still leaves the disability out because I sense you don't necessarily want to discriminate in favour of disability. Or against. Or ag and particularly <laughs> against. against. Lynn, yep. um, what, what do you think about uh, whether we should preference people with disabilities because uh, perhaps they're generally ripped off in society anyway? Uh, I guess first of all I would say that a pandemic situation is not necessarily the best time to try and fix everything that's wrong with society. 
but following on from what Julianne is saying, I think it's really important to recognise the um, unintended consequences for people with disabilities and their families and to think more specifically about redressing those, to mitigating those effects. So if we take your question about um, prioritising children with disabilities um, in order to try and redress some of those disadvantages, I can see how that makes absolute sense if we're thinking about, for example, uh, access to a vaccine, assuming that a vaccine becomes available, who uh, should be prioritised for that. Um, it would make a lot of sense to say those who are at most, uh, who are hardest to protect from um, infection in other ways and perhaps at higher risk of serious disease if they are infected should have priority for vaccine and that may well include some children with some disabilities. I'm wondering, Juliana, what would you think about that? Again, it comes down to the medical risk and if we look at... um children within the hospital, there are many groups of children who would be at increased risk and should be prioritised as a group. And there would be many children with disability who would fall into that, fall into that category. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. And I guess another possibility would be if we're thinking about, uh, in general, lifting restrictions and return to delivery mm. of healthcare as it used to be with much more face-to-face -face interaction. Again, some children and some families uh, are more disadvantaged than others by telehealth methods mm. of delivering health care. And perhaps those are the ones for whom a return to face-to-face -face should be prioritised. Mm. And again, I would imagine that uh, children with disabilities and their families might be amongst those. Again, does that make sense, Juliana? It does. And I think it's one of those things that could work both ways, that creating a situation where they can be safely seen in the hospital more readily, ideal. But for many of those families where it is a routine review to be able to allow them to use telehealth facilities for an extended period of time would create significant advantage um, for those families as well. So I would, I would see it as a, a benefit both ways. That uh, that's interesting. So for some, it might actually be better to use telehealth. In, in the longer might, term. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Term. Yeah. In terms of ease of getting to the hospital, cost of getting to the hospital, uh, the number of appointments that, that they have to visit the hospital for. And if we could give them an extended period of being able to access telehealth, that may be overall in their best interests. So these are the, some of the good things that might uh, come out of, of COVID. I, I want, Lynn, I want to come back to we're trying to, to the question because there's a couple of perspectives I want us to think about. How, how do we ration limited healthcare resources without discriminating against people with disabilities? Lynn, I can sense uh, if we were at the, the really hard end of decision-making, it was really ICUs and, and ventilators, et cetera, uh, do you think there's any role for healthcare rights in our discussion? So how would that help? Uh, rights are one way of naming values and talking in terms of rights, uh, I guess, focuses on the patient or the individual and really challenges us to think about everybody equally. So yes, we should be doing that. But if we were in a situation where intensive care resources say were really stretched 
I don't think it makes ethical or social sense to say everybody should get equal access in the sense of a first come first served approach for example no matter how sick you are no matter what your mm-hmm. expected where you what your expected possibility of recovering is or how long you might live everyone just gets a, an equal uh, opportunity to access that bed uh, because that would result in a, a lot of avoidable deaths and i think saving life is one of the things that we have to put a lot of value on. Um, It seems to me that as the more restricted resources get, in some sense, the more utilitarian we're obliged to be. And we're very fortunate here that we haven't come anywhere near that. And we haven't been forced to actually act on some of these things that we've contemplated. Lynn, we're seeing in parts of the world uh, people who value their rights their individual liberties <laughs> are, are, are over death. Yes, perhaps over their own death and certainly over the deaths of other people. So that's been a big ethical challenge for everybody, hasn't it, in, in this time of pandemic to think about um, what, if anything, do I owe the collective, the community? What do I owe other people? Uh, and when times aren't tough it's easy to go along thinking that you don't owe other people very much at all, except perhaps to refrain from um, actively harming them. Uh, A lot of ethical thought uh, over centuries, over millennia, in fact, has addressed that question. Um, And the idea of individual rights, I guess, focuses only on one part of the picture and it does tend to ignore the responsibilities that go with it. So you can hear me being uncomfortable about the idea of talking about rights in this context. I, I, li- I like it when you're uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> I know, John. It, it means that we're getting to some uh, some nitty gritty, but I think there's some really good thinking to, to come mm-hmm. out of your discomfort. So, uh, so thank you. Uh, I, Juliana, while we're heading towards the answer here, how to limit resources without discriminating, uh, this goes on all the time in uh, organ transplantation, mm. uh, doesn't it? And I'm sure that some of the very the, the patients with very significant disabilities or, well, very complex medical situations that you look after have faced the situation mm. of having an organ transplant or not. And I would suspect you've come up against some resistance uh, which mm. might be perceived as discrimination. Yeah, I, I think um, we've talked in the past about disability literacy and I think it's more a problem of understanding and thinking that disability is a single dimension descriptor that tells you everything. And often the the question that might arise in that situation is does the person's disability, and I'm doing air quotation marks, mean that they their life will be less long than the life of the graft they're being offered. And when it comes to disability, that's the answer to that is that's just not a problem at all. And so then we are stuck in a space where there are value judgments about the contribution and the worth of the individual with a disability and whether they are worthy of the organ. And that that is much more difficult. But part of that process is increasing 
the disability literacy and awareness and 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 I think that that has to happen at a societal level, not just at a hospital level. So there is more work to do in that space. And historically, and certainly um, in the United States, and I know that I'm going into a different space, many states specifically nominate mental retardation, which is a commonly used term in the United States, as a factor precluding access to solid organ transplantation. So Yes, it is a space that represents how scarce resources can be limited and I would describe this as a situation that if we were saying that a person of a particular gender, race or ethnicity was not able to access um, this scarce resource, there would be outrage in the community and we should have a similar outrage about limiting access to this particular group. Lynn, have you got any uh, very specific ethical reflections on the, the I, I guess, the similarities, comparisons with organ transplantation and disability for COVID? Yes, it's a good comparison, John, in, in that um, this is one of the very few places where we actually recognise significant scarcity. There are a very small number of organs available for transplant and we don't in fact want to increase that supply because that would mean increasing the number of deaths on the road, for example. So we know that there is significant scarcity and we've had to make those resource allocation decisions there. Um, In general, the concept of capacity to benefit is used in the allocation of organs for transplant. And as Juliana was talking about a moment ago, um, that's a compar- in some ways a comparative judgment who can benefit the most, but the key issue has been how long would an organ recipient survive with the organ. If their life expectancy because of other reasons is very short, that means they won't get as much benefit from the organ as someone else would get. Uh, but the idea that we should look at somebody's IQ and say, well, you'll benefit more from this organ because your IQ is higher um, I just don't think is ethical, ethically supportable. I think that just gives us uh, sort of additional uh, support when we're making our decisions and trying to simplify the issue. And I think as we think about that questions of, of how we ration healthcare resources without discriminating, Juliana, um, you know, you've helped us think about the difference between disability and, and medical complexity and also help us come back to some entrenched uh, biases uh, that able people uh, have, particularly, you know, that people in the healthcare system are not immune from that. And also, I think, Lynn, we, we've thought about, you know, saving lives, but considering uh, capacity to benefit, but not leaving that particularly subjectively, but leaving it thinking about what life was like before and how we can restore something along those lines. Uh, I I think as part of what we're doing uh, is transparency here. So we're sort of sharing what we've come up with and how we've thought through those, although we haven't talked a lot about including people with disabilities in the development of, of guidelines, but clearly that would be very helpful, and then trying to make it very clear about how decisions are being made. So I'm getting my I'm getting my podcast rope out again. I like to do this to tie people to their chair and make them come up with it with an answer. 
So, uh, Juliana, first, do you think we can ration limited healthcare resources without discriminating against people with disabilities? I think we can. I definitely think we can. Lynn, wrapping around, you're on Zoom, so I'm wrapping around the computer here. Uh, it's a double metaphor. Do you think that we can ration limited healthcare resources without discriminating against people with disabilities? Yes, definitely, because if we focus on the ethical criteria that we have agreed on and set aside the question of disability, think about those criteria, yes, we can. Thank you, Lynn, uh, for your contribution to today's podcast. You're welcome, John, and I must go to another Zoom. You Zoom off. Uh, Juliana, uh, thank you very much for your insights into disability and the COVID pandemic. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed uh, this podcast, please uh, give us a rating on your podcast app. This podcast was brought to you by the generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was produced by the creative studios of the Royal Children's Hospital. If you'd like to find out more about the activities of Children's Bioethics Centre here at the Royal Children's Hospital, visit us on www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. And keep an ear out for our annual conference, which we're having again this year, but in a new format, an online format, and we'll be talking about ethical reflections in the COVID pandemic. Essential Ethics, be inspired.